All right, good morning. Good morning, sorry. Now, we're looking, this morning we're looking at the, the book of Malachi, and I'll get you to turn there shortly, but um, the book of Malachi is concerned with uh, the subject of worship, and so there's, there really is, there's no activity in our lives that's more important than the subject of worship. Um, and so it's the great end for which God created the world, and it's the very purpose for our existence. And as we look at the book of Malachi, that, that's really why the book is so important for us. Um, what we're going to see as we, we look there shortly is it exposes false and superficial worship, and it teaches us about true worship and what's acceptable to God. And so that's what we're going to look at. And, and while this prophet, he's addressing a people that lived two and a half thousand years ago, I think we're going to see as we, we hear them as we hear the prophet address the people of Israel, we're going to hear how relevant this is to us today as well. And um, in the book, the prophet, he gives six rebukes. Um, so he really rebukes the people, and it's a heavy message that he brings. And I thought of this during the week, and I thought how good it was to be not the oldest son in my family. I don't know if anyone else has an older brother or sister. And uh, he went before me. He bumped into Dad's rules a little bit before me. And, and I just sort of hid and took cover behind him as he, as he took, took the heat for various things. But I could learn from him, you know, I could, as, he, as he sort of strayed out the way and got put back in line, you know, I could just line up behind him and, and sort of learn from his mistakes, as it were. And in a sense, we can do that with the Israelites. We can see God rebuking them and we can see them learning these hard lessons, but we can kind of have an eye to it ourselves and... and and they take the brunt of it, but we, we know that it applies to us as well. So it is, it's a really, it's a, it's a tough message that he delivers. In verse 1, he calls it a burden. It's a heavy burden of a message that, that he delivers. And so there's six accusations of unacceptable worship. And we could think of these, to hold it together in your mind, we could think of these as six symptoms of a terrible spiritual disease called apathy. Um, it's a disease that sucks the energy and life out of true worship. It leaves God's people lethargic, disinterested, unaffected, unmotivated, and lukewarm, which is a loaded word when you think of how that's used in Revelation. It leaves us lukewarm and just going through the motions of religious life. And so the outline for today is going to be uh, eight points, but the first six are going to be these six rebukes. We're going to see first that, that the Israelites, they question God's love. We're going to see that they despise God's name. We, we see that they are faithless to one another. They redefine God's justice. They rob God, and they think that it's vain to serve God. So that's the six rebukes. And if you can bear with me as we go through that, um, it is rather heavy in some ways, but at the end of it, the seventh point, we're going to diagnose a single problem that causes all of those uh, faults in our worship, and, and the last point, we're going to prescribe a cure. Um, I listened to Pastor Mike Abendroth, who um, has taught at the Impact Conference, I think it was last year, and he told his people, he said, look, all I can tell you is, is one word, it's a heavy message, and he just said, just duck. <laughs> and so, but I, you know what, I don't, I don't want to deliver it that way, I think we're going to see as well as we go through, it's not just going to be rebukes, but we can also see as the prophet teaches he teaches things that correct us. And so we're gonna, we want to draw attention to um, these faulty aspects of their worship. But then we want to see the hints that he gives us about true worship. And so there's, there's so much positives we can take out of it and, and how we can learn and, and see how it is that we truly live lives 
whole lives that worship God. And so before we get to the text, I just want to give you some, a brief introduction so you can understand these people that Malachi addresses. So if you imagine with me, um, it's about 600 years BC, so about 597 to 586 BC before Christ comes. And the Babylonians took Jerusalem captive. They pillaged the temple, they laid siege, destroyed the city, burned the temple to the ground, and it was about an 11-year siege. So they had, you know, if you think of a movie, they had all those siege works up against the walls in the city. And it was, it was a gruesome 11-year siege. And even in the book of Ezekiel, it was prophesied that there, there would that there'd be, because of their wicked disobedience, all their idolatry and the terrible way that the Israelites were living, uh, God poured out on them an, an equally terrible punishment. And in Ezekiel, it, it says that the fathers would eat their children and the children would eat their fathers. And it's an absolutely gruesome 11-year uh, siege where the people are trapped inside. But it, it was, um, you might ask, like, well, why would, why would God do this? And in Ezra 5 verse 12, it says, Because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. <clears throat> so the people are taken away to Babylon. And you remember 70 years later, it was about 538, 536 BC, um, Nehemiah, and you remember Daniel as well, he looked in the, in the word and he saw how many years they'd be taken captive. And the years that they were taken captive was, was in proportion to the amount of Sabbath years that they didn't let the land rest, so they never obeyed God's laws, and so he punishes them in accordance with their disobedience. But Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he cries out to God, and he says this, and this is Nehemiah 1 verse 7, he says, We have acted very corruptly against you, talking to God, and we have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So he, he points back to the Mosaic covenant that they break. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return, and so he's, he's addressing God with his own word and promises, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you have been scattered and were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to a place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell, which is speaking of Jerusalem. And in, in the book of Ezra, it says, in the first year of King Cyrus, and which is an incredible thing. So as the Babylonians took them captive, the Persians came through and, and took over the Babylonians. And Cyrus was the king, king of the Persians. And in the book of Isaiah, it all works according to God's plan and God's providence. 150 years before Cyrus the Persian um, issues this decree to return the people to um, their own land, the Isaiah the prophet, 150 years beforehand, names Cyrus by name and says he will return the people and so Cyrus comes and you can see that that's um that's Isaiah 44 45 46 if you want to look into that more but it's incredible providence so um in Ezra 6 it says in the first year of King Cyrus Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem he says let the temple the place where sacrifices are offered offered be rebuilt and so think their worship is being restored. And let its foundations be retained. And let the, let the cost be paid for from the royal treasury, which is an incredible thing. Also let the gold and the silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, let them be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. And you shall put them in the house of God. So they took and pillaged the temple and all the gold and all the, 
the serving holy utensils, they're all returned back. And so worship can again begin in Jerusalem. So the, the Israelites, after this exile, they begin to return to Jerusalem. But their conditions, when they get back, are really harsh. And the book of Nehemiah um, helps us understand what it was like when these people returned from captivity. It says in Nehemiah chapter 5, Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may live. So they were, they were starving. There wasn't enough food for all the people. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So there were heavy taxes from the Persians and those ruling over them. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And a few verses later, it says the nobles and the rulers, they were, they were exacting what they call usury on the people, which means they were charging like unreasonably high interest rates. And so at the same time, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you, if you think of these two great men, Ezra and Nehemiah, they led a great reform and they led the people back to knowing God's law and obeying God's law. But in less than a hundred years from their return from Babylonian captivity, within a hundred years, they fall back again into idolatry and disobedience. And so, um, as we start to look at the book of Malachi, it's these people that the prophet addresses, these people that have returned. They've, they've graciously been returned back to their land, and they're able to begin worshipping again God, and that the prophet rebukes them. So if you can open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi, you'll find it in the uh, last book of the Old Testament. So it really is right at the end of the history of the Old Testament. And then we're going we're gonna to work through, we're going to skim through the whole book, but we're going to um, just pick out certain verses on the way through, not the entire thing, but starting in verse 1 of the book of Malachi, this is the first rebuke. So the first thing they do is they, they question God's love. And we can see it in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. And it says, The oracle or the burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And the, book Malachi, uh, the word Malachi, the name means my messenger. And so God speaks through his messenger. And he, and he does it uniquely. He, spe- he literally speaks as God. He says, I will do this. I will do this. And so we clearly see God speaking through this prophet. Um. And verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And, and we hear the response from the people. They question back to God. So the prophet says, oh, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And so they, they question God's love, which is the first rebuke. How have you loved us? They, they don't understand the extent of God's love to his people. They're ignorant of it. And, and the prophet continues, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And so he's saying, he's, he's saying, I chose you. I chose Jacob and his descendants. I didn't choose Esau. And so consider the fact that I chose you. The love I had was a choosing kind of love. And it says, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert, which is the opposite of the plans he has for his people. So the Israelites, as we saw in that context there, the Israelites' earthly situation wasn't looking so good, and they took their situation around them that they found themselves in, they took that to mean that God didn't love them. They looked at their, their surrounding earthly context 
and it wasn't good. And they said, because I don't have things in front of me here and now, the things that I want, God mustn't love me. And so they question God's love. But Malachi, he reminds them of the doctrine of election. And in the New Testament, you know, you'll, you'll be familiar with that verse that Paul says, before the twins were born, before they'd yet done good and evil. That's, that's, and so what, what Paul means is that his choice wasn't based on the actions of one being good and the other being evil. God chose them before they were born and not because they had done good or evil. And so irrespective of their behavior, he just chose to set his love on Jacob and his descendants. And so that's the type of love that the prophet points them back to. And it's a difficult doctrine to get our head around, but the Bible says it as simply as this. We love him because he first loved us. And if you struggle with the doctrine of election, it's as simple as that, that we love him because he first loved. And you can remember it as simply as understanding that his love precedes our response to him. His love precedes our response. And so it's the, it's the doctrine of election that Malachi uses to open the minds of God's people to help them begin to comprehend the unfathomable extent of his love. So God's love, when understood like this as an infinite, it was an eternal and it was a before-the-world-was-even-created kind of love. That's the love with which God loved his people. And so that's the first rebuke. They question God's love. And as a result, they're, they're, because they didn't know how much God loved them, their worship was apathetic, and their hearts were dull. And as a remedy, God wanted them to be set on fire. We, wanted, we see this positive aspect. God wanted them to be set on fire with an understanding of his special electing love. So when the doctrine... When this doctrine of election or God's electing love is understood, and it is hard to understand, it's so unnatural for us to think that way, but it is so biblical. But when we understand that and start to grasp it, it humbles man and it exalts God and it sets our mind and our heart on fire in true worship because we see something more of the love that God has for us. And I have a, in my office, I've got a book on my shelf and it was written by... Um, it was written by Steve Lawson, who's going to be coming in May to the Impact Conference, one of our speakers. And he writes in, the, in this book, he writes a, a note of dedication. You know, they start a book and they say, to my daughters or to my sons. Or, and this one he says, to the memory of Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who was a Bible teacher. And he says, who shocked my world with the doctrines of grace. And, and it really is, when we start to understand those sorts of things about, about God's love, it shocks our world. That's, that's what this doctrine does. And so this, this is pure fuel for the fire of worship. And Lawson goes on and writes, and he says, No other exposition is so worship-inspiring, faith-building, evangelism-producing, missions-launching, even history-altering. And so it's such an important truth. And God spoke through Malachi knowing that this doctrine, the fact that God had chosen them, is a match that ignites true worship. And so that's the first rebuke. Um, and we see the first antidote, as it were, to spiritual apathy is, is to understand God's love for his people. So the second rebuke, and we can see the second rebuke is that they despise God's name. So in, in chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, verse 9, uh, 1, verse 6 says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, them, if then I am a father... This is God speaking. Where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? And, and what do you think when you hear that word fear? The fear of the Lord is the, 
beginning of wisdom. And so these people, they had no fear of God before their eyes, which is, which is the, the worst attitude you can have. They didn't fear God. And so, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests? And he addresses the priests in particular, and we'll see it more shortly, but the people are included as well. And it says, who despise my name? And so that was the title of our second point. These people despised God's name. But you say, and here's the pattern again, they, they question back. And they say, how have we despised your name? They, they don't even know. They're worshiping God. They're coming into the temple. They're giving their sacrifices. And they're, they're ignorant of how they're even offending God. They're like, how have we despised your name? And the prophet continues, by offering polluted food upon my altar, you say, how have we polluted you? Even when he points it out, they, they still don't get it. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And so for them, under the Mosaic law governing their worship, Leviticus 1 verse 3 and 10, it says, you know, of the bulls and the goats and the sheep, it repeats it, he shall bring a male without blemish. That, that, was, that was the animals they were to give. So effectively what he's saying is, you're coming to worship me, you're coming to sacrifice these animals, you're doing it, you're turning up, but you're giving me your scraps. You're giving me the worst. You're giving me, they were meant to give their, their best and their first, and they are offering to God their scraps. And so that's why it was evil. And, and, and the prophet says with some scorn as well, he goes, present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And that, that word governor, it speaks of obviously in a general sense of someone in our society that, that might have more honor. And we think to ourselves, we, um, the idea here is that sometimes we can give more honor to people in our society than we would even give our God. We would be more amazed. And I was, I was thinking how to illustrate this. And I remember going to a rugby game years ago and I think I was at the stadium and, and, and our team we were supporting, you know, they ran in, scored a try in the corner and everybody, myself included, we got up out of our seats and we were like, yeah! And, and it, I let out a cry of excitement and joy and then I would have gone to church the next Sunday and maybe like a mouse worshipped God, you know, just let out a squeak. And that, that's the idea that we can see rugby games or musicians or things that we look up to, people that we admire, and we have more honor and respect to them than we would even have for our God. And this word governor, as well as it's important to understand in Nehemiah, who in Nehemiah and Ezra, they were, um, we understand a lot about the, the book of Malachi by, by reading them. But Nehemiah was actually one of these Persian governors. He was an Israelite, but he was sent to be a governor of Israel for a time. And so he was there in Jerusalem. And he was, he was a man of integrity. And instead of being treated like a normal Persian governor that was ruling over the Israelites, um, he, he gives this insight, and in, it's in chapter 514. And he says that every day, you know what the people had to give their governor? They had to give a whole ox, six sheep, a whole pile of birds. And on every tenth day they would just give them a whole host and selection of the finest wines. So every day they were just, they had these heavy taxes and they were just honoring these governors, these ones that were ruling over them. So the, the, the rebuke there is, you know, would you give these scraps even to your governor and yet God is so much higher? So that's the idea. In verse 9, if we can pick it up again, it says, And now entreat the favor of, <coughs> excuse me, now entreat the favor of God, 
that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? And look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you. Imagine, imagine them coming into the temple courts and, coming into, and the priests coming into the, the temple. And he says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So how does God respond to that type of scraps that he gets given? He, he says, I, I wish you would shut the door and literally not even come in. It would be better for you to not even give the sacrifice than to give it with that kind of attitude and heart. And so, again, the, God's voice really speaking through the prophet says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And it says, I will not accept the offering from your hand. And, and it's, it's an important lesson for us to learn. Just because we come to worship God, it doesn't necessarily mean that God accepts our worship. We come before him, but we, we look at our heart, and it doesn't necessarily, like we can come on a Sunday, and it, he doesn't necessarily accept it just because we turn up. And so this, obviously, this was unacceptable worship that was not accepted. Verse 11 goes on, it says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so for that one verse, he jumps to a prophecy, and he, he says, my name will be honored, and he looks to the future. And then in verse 12, he jumps back to the present, and he says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. Verse 13, but you say, and, and, and imagine this, this is one that really gets me, but you say, what a weariness this is. They're coming in to sacrifice God, and they're like, what a weariness, and you snorted it. Or you, your translation, it might say, you disdainfully sniffed it. You're just like, oh, and they dragged themselves off to the temple to give their sacrifices to God. And I think Ian's already rebuked some people for turning up late this morning. <laughs> but you've got it twice. You've got it from Ian and from God. And, and it is, you know, we, we can come to church and just drag ourselves off to church. And we can roll in 15 minutes late and go, oh, I'm just... And it's as if God's lucky to have us here. You know, and so we need to check our hearts with everything. And so they, they say, what a weariness, and they disdainfully sniff, and says the Lord of hosts, you bring what was taken by violence or lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet he sacrificed to the Lord what is blemished, for I am a great king. And, and I think... Um, the second antidote for spiritual apathy really is hinted at here. It says, I'm a great king. And, the, and if they could see that, if they could just see his greatness, all these ways where they dishonor God is, would just drop to the floor because they would see and honor him as he should be. And I, I think I've mentioned it three times. I don't know why I'm doing this. I think I'm advertising the Impact Conference. But we, um, you know, the subject this year is on a big God. And that's, this is exactly what we're trying to do. We want to, have, we want to see the attributes and the beauty and the greatness of God because that's what lifts our heart to worship when we see him and know him in his greatness and in his majesty. And so that, that's a key little thing for us to learn is to have a high view of God. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And, 
And you know, I think that's the saddest verse in the Bible that God has to tell his own people that he's a great God. He had to tell them. But in uh, chapter 2, we're up to chapter 2. And, and the Lord, he says, 2 verse 1, And now, O priests, and particularly in view, so he lines up the, his gun and the cross is particularly on the priests, the leaders of the people. And so I've been quietly um, rebuked a lot during the week as well because there's a lot of parallels with those that would lead the church. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, and that's the, that's the key, you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a, send a curse upon you and will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. And that's, that's the key, is having a right heart before God. Verse 3, behold, I will rebuke your offspring. And thinking back to these ways that they disdainfully sniff and weary, uh, slowly come in to worship God, he has that in his mind and he says, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. And so what that's really talking about is that they would, they would make their sacrifices, they would cut the meat, the fat, they would offer and burn the, the good parts of the animal, but they'd throw all the scraps, the legs, the heads, um, and the, all the, the inside, like, like you'd gut a fish, but imagine that on a much larger scale with a bull or a sheep. And obviously all the intestines and literally all the stuff that's in the intestines. And God says, that worship, that type of worship that you give me, I want to spread that on your face. And, and that, that is just the strongest language to say that God does not accept uh, that type of worship. And so if we move on again, and it says, and you'll be taken away with it. And verse 4 um, says, so you shall know that I have sent this command to you. And it mentions here a covenant, my covenant with Levi, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. And, and if you remember back at Mount Sinai, I think it's Exodus 32, and there's the incident with the golden calf. They go up, get the law, and they, they comes back and they're worshipping the golden calf. The Levites were the people that were faithful and zealous and did things right, while all the people did things terribly. So there, there was some commendation for the for the Levites, but in particular in Numbers 25, and it's verse 11, it speaks of a covenant that's actually announced with these, with these people. But, uh, so there was a second incident, uh, which is similar to the golden calf, and Israel was worshipping Baal, and they were indulging in sexual immorality, and so it was just a terrible uh, thing they were doing. Aaron's grandson was a man by the name of Phineas, and Phineas... Um, there's the story, you might remember it as well, that there's a, a Moabite woman and an Israelite man and they were committing immorality and Phineas put his spear through the two of them. He was zealous to not let the people be corrupted and it's as if God's wrath and his anger, one commentator said that his spear was like a lightning rod, you know, that conducted and pointed God's wrath to that and so that that was like a propitiation that he was zealous for the Lord, that he ran the spear through these two people for the evil that they were doing, and it averted uh, the wrath of God um, through this thing that Phineas did. And so he was, he was zealous to do things. So God makes a covenant with him. And so that's what it says here. My covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts, in verse 5, so we're 2 verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And you start to see the opposite. This is what a a true priest in the Old Testament should be doing. 
Um, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. So this is a good example. He stood in awe of my name. So he had a high view of God. True instruction was in his mouth. Which if, and in Jeremiah twenty two twenty three, it speaks of the prophets, but it's a similar idea. If they had have stood in my counsel, that's, that's God's counsel. If they had have done things God's way, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And so that's the idea of true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found in his lips. He was honest and full of integrity. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and uprightness, sorry. And he another thing he did was he turned many from iniquity. So he would have been a prickly person, these priests to meet, to, to keep turning his people from iniquity. And verse seven says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. They're not to come up with clever ideas and new ways of doing things, but they are to guard what's already there. Um, so they they, they preserve the old truth. They hold fast to God's truth. They guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord. And that verse 7 there, some would see a, a chiasm, if you understand that Hebrew uh, grammatical sort of way of structuring an idea, would be like a, there'd be an idea at the beginning and end, but at the middle there'd be this high point, which would be focusing attention on this particular thing. And some people would see verse 7 there as a, as the tip, the, the high point, that there's a, a true messenger of the Lord of hosts. But in verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many, and so he flicks his mind back to the, the way that the priests, the, the, the terrible way they were acting, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. And so the priests, and, and with a parallel, leaders in the church today have a great responsibility because if the instruction is bad, they lead many people astray. And so it's such a key role. Um, true instruction is, is such a key part of how we worship God and how we do that well. And so you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. You are not at all like Phineas. Um, and so I've made you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you know, as you do not keep my ways. And it says, but show partiality in your instruction. So they would... They would feel pressure from people or from the outside world and they would be partial. They wouldn't teach God's word God's way. They would, they would change it and pare off the hard edges and, and they were partial in their instruction. So that's the, that's the second uh, of six rebukes. So some of them are a bit quicker and we'll make some better time. But we see in this one, we see key to true worship. We see as well that we have a high view of God and, and we see that that. True instruction is a key part of true worship as well. Uh, the third rebuke is that they were faithless to one another. Um, and we can see this in chapter 2 verse 10 to 2 verse 16. So if you look at 2 verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Created us? It says, why do we deal treacherously with each other? Which means to break faith or deal faithlessly, which is the rebuke. They were faithless to one another. And here as well, you see that worship goes from coming to the temple and giving sacrifices. It, it even involves the instruction that the priests are giving. Um, but true worship also starts to branch out into how we treat other people. So true worship is far more than, than just coming to church and, and what we do on a Sunday, but it's how we live and relate. And particularly in this chapter, we see how we relate to family relationships. But they dealt faithlessly with each other, profaning the covenant of our fathers, 
Judah is dealt treacherously, and an abomination, which is a strong word, has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has, here's their sin, this is the abomination. They've married the daughter of a foreign god. And, and quite simply, it means that they had married those outside Israel, and they, were, they married for outside the covenant people. And we know in the Old Testament, the reason why that was dangerous was that they would, it would turn their hearts away from God. And, and I just want to make this really clear as well. This principle isn't just an Old Testament principle. Who we marry um, in the New Testament, our instruction is exactly the same, that we are to marry in the Lord and that we're not to be unequally yoked. So I just want to not show partiality there, but um, just teach that as, as the Word of God says. And so that was their sin. Verse 12 says, As the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. So he turns it to another thing. And it's, an, again, another family dynamic, another family relation. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering. So they're offering, um, they're, they're, they're in tears. They, they, God's not responding well to their worship and their sacrifices. He, ne- he doesn't accept it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? And again, they don't know. And he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. And so when we get married, we go through that ceremony and so many of those elements of a, of a marriage ceremony, one of the things is we stand there in the presence of God and God is a witness to this covenant that we're making. And so they had trailed and so they had, they had broken faith with their marriage covenants. And it says, against you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, is in verse 14. Verse 15 says, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And this is a really tricky verse to um, understand. But, and you, you, your Bible may word this quite differently. But it, S. Lewis Johnson, he would say that this, this means, but um, there's, if you have any ounce of spiritual insight, just the littlest bit, you wouldn't be as foolish to divorce your wife, is essentially what, what he would take that to mean. And what did that one do while he was seeking? And, and again, the wording here is very, very hard to, to get at. Some, some would say that God is pointing back to creation and say, God made Adam one wife, and he could have made more, um, but he made one wife for Adam, and that's how he, he designed it to be. And what was that one God seeking? And the point of the whole thing, the point of their marriage relationship and who they marry was to this, this goal, was seeking godly offspring, was seeking godly children. And so it says, and which is just a hugely important thing in the life of um, God's people, is raising godly children. And... And he says, take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your, your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And I, I just want to, um, I think I've got the potential to offend so many people as we touch on the most sensitive things in here. There's, I know there's some people among us that, that don't have children, um, that aren't married, um, or have something in their past from a divorce. But the, this passage, it isn't teaching the exceptions. We know, we know in the New Testament that there's an exception uh, in permitting divorce in the case of unfaithfulness. But this passage is teaching 
the norm. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have an eye to the exception. So I don't, I don't want to be insensitive to all the different situations that you find yourself in. But God does not like divorce. And we're to honor our wives and our marriage covenants is the, is the positive instruction. And it says here, and him who covers his garment with wrong, which is covering his garment is like in Ruth. You know, when Ruth came in, we just learned that she was at the feet at night of uh, Boaz, and she asked to cover the garment. It speaks in the Bible of marriage. And so you cover your marriage garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not, do not deal faithlessly. And so if we look at this third rebuke, we see that how we treat others and how we these relationships amongst our families, um, these are also aspects of how we live out a life in worship to God. And so do you, do you think of that when you're, when you're raising your kids? It's an act of worship. So the fourth rebuke, um, this is a quick one. And it says, rebuke number four is they, and this is in 2 verse 17, they redefine God's justice. So they redefine God's justice. And at first you might go, what, is, what does that mean? But just think about it a little more. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Again, they're ignorant. But by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And so what you see is that um, these people inside, God's pe- uh, inside the people of God, the Israelites, there were some that would call evil good and call good evil and say, oh, God's happy with that. And so they're, they're taking what's wrong. They're redefining God's justice and they're calling good evil and evil good. And in our culture around us, we, we see this so much at the moment, don't we? What is evil is called good. And we feel, even as, as the people of God now, we feel this pressure amongst us to compromise and to change. And, and we have legislation going through at the moment on abortion. We have um, just so many... Uh, sexual perversions that our society thinks are perfectly fine and they press in on God's people on the church and there's that, that pressure to crumble and at the end of the day as an act of worship we won't bow to those pressures. And so um, rebuke number five is in uh, chapter 3 verse 8. And it says that, so this rebuke, this fifth rebuke, is that they robbed God. And so, I think I'll move a little quickly here. We have a few minutes and we, um, but they robbed God. And it says, verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. And it talks about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. And so the idea with this one is that we worship God even in our material possessions. We're not commanded to give 10% of our money. We're not specified an amount. But the New Testament teaches us that we're to give out of a cheerful heart. And again, we're to give our first, we're to give our best, and we're to be generous, and we, we love to give. Um, and so that, again, how we spend our material possessions is an act of worship, how we live our lives pleasing to God. The sixth rebuke was in chapter 3.13, and it says they thought it vain to serve God. They thought it was vain. So they're like, what is the point of serving God? And it says, your words have been arrogant, arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said, it's vain to serve God. And the key here to un- understand it is, and what profit is it to us that we have kept his commandments? And that opens up their heart because 
They were only worshipping God if they got something out of it. So they had a, a whole religion built on worshipping God for the sake of him giving them things. So their love wasn't truly to God. It was, their whole religion was built on self-love. And so that was um, another aspect of their corrupt worship. And so we, we can learn from this one as well that worship, true worship of God is not focused on the self. It's not man-centered. True worship is a God-centered thing. And so that's the six rebukes. And so if we ran through them quickly, we saw the first antidote to spiritual apathy was knowing God's electing love. The second element of true worship we saw was having a high view of God. We saw that God was a great king, and we saw that um, true instruction was key to the worship of God's people as well. It had a huge significance. We also saw that worship was for more than what happens when we come to church on Sunday, that how we live our lives, how we uh, in those key relationships with who we marry, marriage covenants, and producing godly children, that these are all part of our worship. They're hugely important to God. And we, we saw as well how we use our material possessions as a key part of living a life of worship to God. And, and we saw that um, living by God's standard of morality, not bowing to the pressures of, of other things around us, doing things God's way as a key part of our worship. And the last thing we saw was um, that we worship God for who he is and not what he gives us. And so we have a God-centered worship. So that's, that's the six rebukes. If we were to diagnose the problem, if you look in the last, the last verse in Malachi, it talks of um, verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and coming terrible day of the Lord. And so it says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And what that means is, um, not that fathers and dads will get on better, but that, that the, the people of God, their heart was not right, and he will, in one time in the future, he will restore their hearts to be like Abraham, like their fathers that were truly loving to God. But the key there is that he will restore hearts. And all, if we were to diagnose the problem, all those aspects of false worship all result in our hearts not being right before God we don't have the right motivations. We're sick in our heart. And that's the source of all false worship. And so the last point, we, when we prescribe a cure, how do we fix this? Like, how do we, how do we make ourselves willing to love God and to, and to worship God in this way? And ultimately, you know, the book of Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And what does is, what is the whole Old Testament point towards? You know, so if there's an arrow with a, a metal tip on the end of it. The book of Malachi is the very tip of the arrow pointing to Christ. So the whole Old Testament is pointing to Christ, and they are so close. The prophecies in here, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. That speaks of John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so it, and it, he comes just before Christ. And so it's pointing, it's so close. They've had this long history and Christ is just around the corner. But what, is, what do you think is the point? We sit here as new covenant members or new covenant people of God. What is the whole point? If you got right down to the crux of our religion, what did Christ do for us that we remember when we, when we took communion? And in the book of Ezekiel, you know this passage, there's this promise of what will happen in the new covenant that I will take out your heart of stone 
He'll do an operation on us. He'll take out a heart that can't offer that worship to God. He'll take it out. He'll put in a heart of flesh. And I love these words. And he will cause you to walk in his ways. He will make you willing and able to do and live. And so in the new covenant, as people on this side of the cross, we have this immense covenantal relationship with God where he gives us the very thing he commands of us. He works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so instead of just external commands, he actually helps us. He changes our hearts and gives us the ability to worship God and to be pleasing to him. And so I just want to give you one illustration to finish. I've given this on a Wednesday afternoon, so some of you would have heard it. But I I don't have many, but... Um, you know, my dad, he used to, when I was a teenager, so I'd be like Max's age, I think, and I had a bike, and I think Max has a bike, and um, we lived really close to a supermarket, and my dad, he'd be cooking dinner, he often cooked dinner, and he would, um, he'd run out of some ingredient, he'd be like, Andrew, jump on your bike, go and get me some butter, and I'd be like, oh, dad, for goodness sake, I'm a teenager, I've got so many important things I'm doing, you know? <laughs> You're just you're interrupting my, my life. Like, I just don't want to just get on my bike and get you butter. And so it was like, it was hard work. And I'd be like, oh, and I'd drag my feet down there, get on my bike, get some butter. But do you know what happened one day? There was this, this young lady started working at the supermarket after school. <laughs> and she would be my wife. <laughs> and my dad, my daddy asked me one day, he goes, and I knew, I knew Jen was working down there at the supermarket, and she goes, Andrew, I'm out of ingredients. I need some butter. And what do you think I did? I was like, I was like sure, Dad, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm straight down there. And you know, and it's like, what happened? It was the same task, right? It was the same commandment that, that I was given. But in one way, it was like, I was just, it was a dread. And, but the same law, looking back at it from a different direction, I loved to do it. It was easy. The same law was easy for me to do. And so, and, so that's, and so as we hear all these heavy rebukes in the book of Malachi, I, I don't want to burden God's people. Like you, don't, you, don't, you have no condemnation in Christ. You, I don't want you to feel at the end of this message that we're, um, we, we need to do these things to please God more because God, uh, Christ has done everything for us. He has kept God's law perfectly. He has lived this life of perfect worship. And God doesn't look at us as if, uh, yeah, so I just, I don't know how to say this. I don't want you to go home and think, I've got to be that much better. I feel so burdened. When we look at the new covenant and everything Christ has done for us, we look back at these things in a different way and we go, I would love to do that. It's easy for us to do that. And so I, I, that's, I think that's how we as new covenant people, we look at these, these rules, these commands, these rebukes. These are things that we love and have joy in doing. And so, just to finish, if you just look in um, that wonderful verse in the book of Romans, after all the gospel truth presented in the book of Romans, 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, and so I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Amen.